Hey friends, let's go back to the 90s with our new book, Mixtape Theology, 90s Christian Edition. It's part devotional, part retrospective, and all awesome. Rediscover the wonder of songs like The Great Adventure and Jesus Freak as you uncover their spiritual significance. But you know, we couldn't just give you a book without some 90s Christian cheese. We've included some original comics and hilarious retrospectives. Michael Tate of Newsboys and DC Talk calls mixtape theology the ultimate nostalgic throwback, and Michael W. Smith calls it a great read. Mixtape theology will have you falling in love with these songs and the gospel all over again. It's nostalgia served with a side of renewed faith, and it's available now at Amazon and Walmart.com. Now, back to the podcast. Hey, Mixtape Theologians, you are about to hear part one of a two-part interview with Big Tent Revival's Steve Wiggins. Be sure to listen to part two on August 15th. Also, heads up that we are giving away a copy of the 30-Minute Bible, courtesy of InterVarsity Press. Head over to our website, mixtapetheology.com, scroll down to the bottom where it says subscribe for updates, Enter your email address by August 31st, 2021, and you'll be automatically entered to win a copy of that book. Now, back to the podcast. Welcome to Mixtape Theology. I am Dr. Ashley Mofield, and I'm glad you're here. At Mixtape Theology, we like to look at 90s contemporary Christian music, dig into some of our favorite songs, reminisce on them, as well as look at the theology of the songs we loved. Also, we pick at ourselves a little bit, thinking about the 90s and uh, the nostalgia and the culture, and we just have a good time. I'm glad you've joined us today. Today, we have a very special guest, Mr. Steve Wiggins from Big Tent Revival. Welcome, Steve. Glad you're here. So glad to be here. I've been waiting for this for, uh, you know, how many weeks have we been talking about this? Months we've been talking about making this happen. So it's it's a big deal that you've allowed me to come on here today. I will say that I feel intimidated and in that you are a doctor and that I'm not even a nurse. <laughs> and I don't, I just want to let you know that uh, I'm more of a patient at this point. Although I do believe that I think it's odd you're wearing a stethoscope, stethoscope and you're not a medical doctor, but I'll just let that go. Well, you know, um, this right now we are on Zoom, but we will turn this into a uh, <laughs> uh, just an audio podcast. Oh, so they so, won't see that you're so dressed they won't like a doctor. See the stethoscope that I wear in my office at church. Um, right. So um, and the mirror on your head. I never understood that either. I'm a little embarrassed you pointed that out. Um, we can edit that part of the <laughs> of the interview out. Um, man, okay. thank you for being here. Uh, yes, sir. It, it is great to have you. You have a lot of fans at Mixtape Theology. Um, and, and if you're not familiar with Steve, um, Steve, you actually founded the group Big Tent Revival and maybe started off with a solo career. And, yes. and then through God's providence, um, even through things I've learned about you, it wasn't anything that you necessarily sought after or had a lot of training and know-how. And just by the, the grace of God, ended up in the contemporary Christian music song with a band and a recording contract and doing all that. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. I mean, my, when my parents first heard that I was leaving college uh, in order to uh, get into the Christian music business, they thought I was crazy. You know, I'm on a 
I'm on a track scholarship that's paying for school. Uh, I'm, uh, you know, had no musical training other than like, I think when my grandmother bought me a guitar, it came with like a week's worth of free lessons. That was part of selling the guitar. (laughs) And, uh, but other than that, was it Esteban? It was not an Esteban, although in Spanish, my name is Esteban. (laughs) And I've actually tried to sue that guy uh, for copyright infringement. Apparently there's a lot of guys named Esteban, so uh, it wouldn't go through. You got to have long fingernails to play like that guy. (laughs) I've seen him on the infomercials, man. (laughs) You have to have long fingernails. You almost have to be a Tim Burton character, don't you? (laughs) To to play flamenco. Right. I still, I'm from Arkansas. So birds you put in your front lawn. So, um, so yeah, so I, nobody knew, uh, nobody thought that this would go anywhere. They thought it was a distraction and I probably had kind of foiled. I had 10 hours left to graduate from college and I'd just become a believer 1988. And, uh, and so I, you know, I had everything that I owned on the luggage rack of a 1975 Corvette and it was everything I owned. And uh, I remember literally sitting at a crossroads, which is a very Memphis thing, by the way. And uh, I could have turned right and gone back to Fort Smith, Arkansas, where I was from, worked in the Whirlpool refrigerator factory for the summer, making good money, saving up for that last year of college. Or I could turn left, leave everything and follow the Lord's call. And I was listening to a, a sermon by John MacArthur on a cassette tape. And it was called The Crisis of Decision. I'll never forget it. He says, by faith, uh, Moses refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer the afflictions of his people than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. And going to college isn't a sin and running track definitely isn't a sin. And and getting all that paid for for a scholarship is not a sin. Making money at Whirlpool's not a sin. But when you know that the Lord's calling you to do something else, uh, even those things in and of themselves may not be sinful activities. You know that where you need to be is where the Lord is calling you, mm-hmm. uh, because where God guides, God provides. And so, uh, and I and I don't want to be in a place that seems uh, humanly wise when I'm I'm walking away from the Lord, who's like, no, I I have this for you. Trust me. Uh, It's kind of like, you know, the call of Abraham, you know, leave Ur of the Chaldees, leave your family, leave everything you've ever known. And he doesn't even tell him where he's going to send him. He says, now go to the place that I will show you. And uh, and so that's what it felt like when I left college and went to Memphis. I didn't know anybody, you know, in the music business, really. I'd met a couple of guys and I walked into one studio one time. And if my kids came to me and said the same setup to me, I'd tell them they were crazy, too. And yet nobody can really tell you personally what it is the Lord's put on your heart. And uh, and so there we were. And uh, within six months, I had a, a, a record deal on Sparrow Records, which is unbelievable. People said to me in the past, yeah, how'd you get in Christian music? You know, and you know what they're asking. They're asking, how can I get in Christian music? How can I become successful? And I Sparrow, say, one of the big big names of the 90s what's funny is at that time they had a they had a house on 16th avenue and uh we'd gone to we had three record companies that were looking at these demos which we had made and one of them was 
<clears throat> reunion records and one of them was another record company. And then, of course, there were Sparrow Records. We talked to Forefront Records, too. Mm -hmm. And at that time, Sparrow was on this in this little bitty house in Franklin. They had a very small artist roster. That was really their biggest deal. We, we, we have very few artists. Oddly, most of them were named Steve. Uh, <laughs> you had Steve, Steve Chapman, right? You had Steve and Annie Chapman. Uh, I think we're on that at that time. Then you had uh, Steve Green. And here comes another Steve. And uh, and what's funny is we signed with Sparrow thinking they were that little record label, you know, that was going to be really focused on the, the artist more than the big, you know, roster. And uh, then in between signing the record deal and, and, and completing the record, Sparrow got bought by um, uh, EMI and mm. they became like Cordant. Christian music group with EMI and and that thing moved out to Brentwood in this huge office building so whereas we thought we signed with a little tiny record label because we didn't know anything about Christian music uh we just went with the guy that we met you know in a a creaky wooden floor house on 17th Avenue Peter York and uh and then we ended up realizing that we had signed with uh you know one of the biggest labels in town and it was it was getting enormous by the day Wow. Good times. And you guys had a, a big run. Um, I know you had probably your, your biggest songs that people will recognize. Of course, two sets of Joneses. And um, before this podcast is over, I want to get into that maybe a little bit. Choose Life. And then a, a song that was a huge song for y'all that's about as 90s as it gets is What Would Jesus Do? Yeah, that's, um, a, funny, that's a funny song. Did, uh, did you I, get a cut off of the bracelets that were being sold during that time? Yeah. Don't I wish uh, I had the wrong attorney, apparently. Uh, what's funny, I'll tell you a funny story about that. Which happens to be the story. Um, so Dana Key from DeGarmo and Key was one of the owners of. Well, let me let, let me do a little timeline action here. Go so ahead. I'm on Sparrow Records and I had a solo record that came out at the exact same marketing push as like Susan Ashton and Jimmy Abeg and Out of the Gray and Steve Wiggins. And Jimmy and I didn't sell any records. And of course, Out of the Gray became huge automatically. And then Susan Ashton became huge overnight. But Jimmy and I didn't really sell any records. And I'm not really sure who sold less. Probably me. And so, and so I had found myself without a record deal. All right. Because the way the record business works is it's kind of like your grandmother. They'll give you money to make a record. Now, if you don't make any money back, they don't make you pay them back. Like your grandma doesn't make you pay her back, but she'll probably never loan you any more money. <laughs> right. And so 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 if you don't sell the records, then that's the way the record business works. Well, then they don't make more records with you. So I make one record on Sparrow. Then I find myself without a record deal. And I still had eligibility so I could go back to college and run track for one more semester, get my degree, go on with my life. And then uh, Big Tent Revival happened. And at that time, uh, Dana Key had sold his share of Forefront Records to Eddie DeGarmo and Dan Brock and was kind of sitting there with, you know, what am I going to do now? Dana and Eddie were going to make maybe one more record and then break up after that. And he took his money from Forefront and invested it in Ardent Records in Memphis. And they formed Ardent Records. So while I still had a, pre a production deal with Ardent, 
they ended up signing Big Tent Revival. So that's my relationship with Dana Key. He was one of the owners of, of Ardent Records, Ardent Christian Music, which went on to produce not just us, but also uh, Small Town Poets and Skillet and Brothers Keep, a bunch of other albums after that. So Dana calls me one day and he says, Steve, I got this idea. I want to make a record. He had been reading that book in his steps. Right. Where Sheldon. the question, say what? Charles Sheldon, a classic. Yeah. Right. A classic. He had read that independent of knowing about any kind of bracelets or anything. And he came to me and said, Steve, I want to make an album called WWJD. Because this guy asked people to, 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 um, to ask this question in his congregation in the book, what would Jesus do? And apparently there was some kind of revival or, right. or some, some surge of the Holy Spirit when people started asking that simple question. And so he said, I want to theme it around a 1950s radio station, right? WWJD, it'd be like WWJD broadcasting live. And I want to make a compilation record with the artists who, are, who were signing to Ardent Records. And I said, okay. He goes, said, well, you're the record company. You tell me what to do. I don't, sure, I'd love to do it. And then we never had that conversation after that again. And so months later, Big Tent Revival is in Branson, Missouri, about to play at Canacook Camp. Mm -hmm. And I get a phone call from Dana. <clears throat> and he says, uh, hey, what are you doing today? And I said, nothing. He goes, well, hey, I'm in a marketing meeting. Um, right now with Zondervan and EMI and we're excited about your song. And I said, uh, which song would that be? And he said, your song WWJD. And I said, uh, Dana, I don't, I don't have a song called WWJD. <laughs> and he goes, what? And I said, I don't have a song called WWJD. And he goes, no, I told you to write a song. I said, no, you told me you were going to make a record. And I just figured we'd use one of our existing songs and a compilation record, you know. And uh, I, don't, I don't have a song called WWJD. And he said, I have, I'm in a marketing meeting right now. He starts yelling on the phone. <laughs> I'm in a marketing meeting. And I've sold all these people on this album. Zondervan's going to make a book. They've contacted this guy that's making these bracelets. EMI's going to put a bunch of artists on this album and it's all centered around the fact that you have a hit song called WWJD. Man, the and pressure said, was on then, right? I said, Dana, I said, I don't have a, I don't have a song called WWJD, much less a hit song. And he said, well, listen, uh, when you get back to Nashville, you better have a hit song because we've got to play it to these people. <laughs> And so everybody in Big Tent Revival went out riding go-karts that day. And I had to sit in a condo in Branson and I wrote the song, What Would Jesus Do?, which ended up selling like a million units. And uh, and on the uh, <clears throat> even on the it was on like one of the wow records, you know, which went like platinum or something. Right. And so uh, it's just funny, you know, how that how it all works. And, you know, I went I went about that song just like I go about every other song, which is it's interesting, a little ritual, I suppose. But I just say, God, listen, I I know you've gifted me to communicate musically and lyrically, but I don't want to presume that you'll ever do it again. Mm. 
And uh, so I know there's a lot of pressure by these guys in Nashville, but Lord, I know that inspiration has nothing to do with meeting somebody's marketing deadlines. And so, God, if you want me to write another song and then you want that song to be successful, I kind of need it like right now. And so put into my mind, let me go deeper on the idea of what would Jesus do? And uh, and I think that's when <clears throat> here we were about to play at a camp to a bunch of kids and everything. And so then I just, you know, I just closed my eyes and I prayed. I'm like, Lord, where are we going with this? And, and do you even want me to do this? Because I have no problem calling these guys back and saying, listen, Dana made a mistake. And uh, and I'm sorry if I miscommunicated to him, but I don't have something. And then the Lord has not given me something. And it's interesting even using the word inspiration, because, I mean, those are words which are used for like, you know, Bible writers. But I do believe, obviously, that when I'm writing a song, I'm not writing psalms. I'm not writing, you know, something that's going to be included someday in the canon of Scripture. Sure. But I also think it's myoptic. It's it's very um, short-sighted, and I don't think it's biblical to assume that the Lord would not speak to you in a moment today, and that he would not give you a knowledge, as it were, of something that he wants to want you to do. I mean, don't we pray over a lot of things? And, uh, and so I, I don't understand why writing a song, uh, just because the Lord opened your mind and allowed you to see something in a unique way that would reach people with the gospel, it doesn't mean that it has to be included on the level of, of scripture, but you also don't want to discount the fact that the Lord does lead you. And what's very interesting is that in my life, um, he, everything on a shelf has a shelf life and there are seasons where the Lord will use you greatly. And then, and then he will not use you in the same way that is in a public way and, uh, or in a, in a highly marketed way, but it doesn't mean that he's still not using you. Right. And so uh, that's one of those situations with what would Jesus do that um, it's funny. It didn't exist. And, and you can almost say that it was forced. But the truth is, is that it was the right song for the right moment in a, in a time in history. Like I said, I've, I've kind of forest gumped my way through a lot of things in life and found myself uh, right there in the middle of some real pivotal times in evangelical history, mm. even to have been born in 1968, which put me at exactly the right age and the right time uh, in 1995 to be on the front end of a musical explosion in the 90s for Christian music. All of that is the Lord's, you know, the Lord's doing. And uh, and then the just as soon as it happened, within 10 years, it was pretty much over mm. for everybody. Right. Yeah. So you're saying you're like, wipe your face on the t-shirt and there's a smiley face and you tell somebody <laughs> That's have a what, nice what day. Jesus do was like much like Forrest Gump. That's hilarious. Well, you know, that's a, that is very insightful. And I think for any aspiring songwriters, which, you know, it, it is, um, you know, the contemporary Christian music scene for uh, a lot of people, it, you know, they, they feel like a lot of the modern stuff is lacking. There's still a lot of great artists out there. Um, but I appreciate your approach to, to the songwriting, you know, I'm not a songwriter, but every week I have to write a sermon and it's right. what God has already said, but I do have to pray God. And what do you want 
your people to hear this week. And so God does lead me. Like if I fail to really pray through that, um, I'm missing really what God is calling me to do as he would, as you say, inspire me, not anything that I'm going to say is going to equate to scripture, but of course, scripture is my foundation and context. And, and so, you know, I know a lot of the great songwriters, probably one of my favorites, Stephen Curtis Chapman. I mean, man, everything he writes, you can tell it's a reflection of his devotional life and God speaking to him. It's not just, all right, I'm going to write a song. It's really seeking the Lord. Yeah. I was, I was sharing with a guy a while back and about how hard it is to get a record deal Mm -hmm. and then how hard it is to write a hit song. Mm -hmm. And then how hard it is to, to get your record company to consider your song a priority on their marketing and radio push (laughs) and how hard it is to get a programmer to program it in heavy rotation. And then how hard it is for people to call into the radio station and want to hear that song again so that they, they push it up to number one. Most people who are in college athletics, let's say track, because I ran track, most people will never win a race. Four years of college, never win a race. You know, mm. Most artists will never become a priority for one of their songs. And if they are, that one song that ever became a priority never made it all the way to be the number one in the country. And, and, and I said, you know, it's amazing that anybody ever gets to that point. Uh, it is absolutely dumbfounding where it's like God uses the foolish things of this world to confound the wise that, that, that guys like us and big tent revival all pretty much. I mean, we were good at what we did. We were great together, but as individuals, we were all just really good. And, uh, but not great. We weren't the best guitar player in the world or singer or songwriters or whatever. But the fact that you'd have 10 number one songs, that that would happen 10 times, that, 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 that your albums, every one of them would be nominated for a Grammy award or that anybody would, you know, it's like, that's only the Lord can make that happen. Mm, yeah. Right. Only the Lord can make it happen. And, and you can't create it. You can't just turn around and say, okay, well, let's just wind this whole thing up and do it. Let's do it all again, except now it's 2021 instead of 1991. It just, it's, it's the Lord. It's the call of the Lord. And, and, uh, and the moment that you start believing that you can make these songs just, you know, you know, you belch and they just come out naturally. It's like, that's, that's when it's over. <laughs> Thanks for joining us on this part one of a part two series with Steve Wiggins. Check back for part two on August 15th, where we will learn more about what Steve is up to with Groundworks Ministries and also catch up with Reuben and Sue. What are they up to now? See you soon. The Mixtape Theology Podcast is part of the NRT Podcast Network. Find more Christian music-related podcasts at newreleasetoday.com.